Hello, I'm Jason. I'm Jeremy. And today we're going to talk about inventory optimization. So what does it mean to optimize an inventory? All organizations and particularly large supermarkets have huge amount of stock. That's collectively their inventory, right? So it's, it's everything in the, in the lines of milk and cheese. And, and you're trying to keep the right amount of stuff in the back room or on the shelves that will sell. This is the hard bit. For any company that's, that's certainly in retail, it's keeping the right amount of stuff. So th there's cost um, associated with having an inventory. You could say, look, I'm selling uh, Kit Kats or something, uh, and I'm selling 20 a day, and I always sell out. Um, I'm, I could get in 40 a day, see if those sell. And maybe you, you, you sell them, you sell those as well. So you, then you get, right, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in 100 a day, but then you only sell sort of 70 or something like that. Now, now, you're, left, now you're left with a problem, which is not huge because it's Kit Kats, but, but you're, you've got yeah. 30 Kit Kats that are left over and you've got to put those somewhere. And remember to bring them with you next time you're selling them and that kind of thing. And it builds up. Yeah. But you could, you could solve your problem of underestimating what, what the customer wants by just buying in loads. I see this on Dragon's Den the whole time where people come in with a product and they want to get it out into the big retailers. But the comment is always that space is expensive. And until they're guaranteed that what you are proposing will sell and move quickly off their shelves, they don't want to make the sacrifice of that shelf space. The issue is either it's expensive because uh, you've, you've got to not just put it on the shelf, but you've got to, you've got, you've got to find the warehouse space to put uh, the thousand copies of that item um, that, are, that are going to go into the store later on in the day in the week in the month you've got to find you've got to find space for that in your warehouse as well and it turns out that a thousand items maybe they're a bit bigger than Kit Kats now maybe we're talking um, maybe we're talking boxes of cereal or something bulky like that they take up yeah. a lot of room you got those baskets in the middle of little and Aldi where they have some random products like a hedge streamer. Yes. And that's the bulky item for that week. Right. But it won't be there the following week. No. And maybe each time they do it, it's testing the water of what sells. It, it, it undoubtedly is. And it's actually quite a smart way of doing it is to say, I'm not going to commit to having something next week. You bring it in, you, you stack it, and then you just watch it go and you don't have any supporting stock or supporting inventory off the back of that. that. That's not what this is about. This is when you're trying to keep your customer happy by having bread, say, in store. They're expecting when they come back for bread to be there the next time and you've got to have a supporting stock to, to keep that going. Right. So there's an ongoing demand and we need to optimise for what that demand is. Make sure that we meet it and essentially profit off the back of it. You know, at the same time, we don't overstock so that we incur this, this quite expensive space that item takes to, to, to actually stock in the, in the warehouse. You say demand, and, and, and that's exactly right. What we're talking here about is, is, is meeting the customer's uh, demand and... Changing demands as well. Oh, oh completely. Because <laughs> what they buy on a Monday is probably different from what they're going to ask for on a Tuesday in terms of the quantity and Wednesday and Thursday and so on. So you've got possibly 
change, which we call a seasonality. Mm -hmm. Lots of fluctuations you might want to take into account, but the the crucial thing is here, it's it's not it's not sales, it's demand, and the two are different. I think that's that's something which often gets sort of thrown at data science scientists as a as a, as a as a problem to look at, which is we've got this sales trend or we've got this sales information or data. We need to know what the in- inherent demand uh, is in yeah. uh, for for our product. There was a big kind of a hoo-ha in Ireland when the beast from the east came and everybody's demand was focused on bread and all of these memes abounded with why is all the bread flying off the shelves? Yes. And it's not even something that's non-perishable, like tinned food. I lived in Hawaii and when there was a tsunami warning, the tinned food and the bottled water was what flew off the shelf. Yeah. There's the extreme situation, the extreme responses to uh, wanting goods as far as consumers are concerned, which trigger these sort of flash demands on, on, on a product. But then there's the, there's the regular trend, the regular seasonality, the regular up and down of demand. The, the critical thing from the, the, the data science perspective is, is understanding when, uh, when you've um, got demand that you're not meeting, essentially latent demand, hidden demand, I think it's, it would be called. So you see that typically when so you're stocking an item and it sells out by two o'clock in the afternoon. You can watch this by looking at the point of sale data. You can see the timestamps on these sales of these. It gives you the opportunity to say, well, I can see that we're selling out at two o'clock or 2.30. On the odd occasion where we, we brought in more stock, maybe we were still seeing sales of, that, of those bread loaves through till six o'clock. And this is the crucial thing. So what, what that allows you to do is to say, I can estimate what our sales would have been had we had the stock to meet the demand that we were having, but where previously we were selling out at two o'clock. The few days where we had enough stock and the sales went through to six o'clock, we can use that difference in the, in the distribution, essentially, to work out what, what the demand would be on other days when we, when we did sell out. And that's that's really important that we're looking at we're looking at demand. We're trying to meet the demand when we're thinking about how much stock we should put in place in our inventory to uh, uh, to, to meet it. Without that, we can't we can't really be um, optimizing it. Yeah, and there feels like a natural split in the inventory between your perishable and non-perishable items. So we'll have the demand for our non-perishable items, and either we keep them in store and they'll eventually be purchased. Or we have perishable items that will simply go to waste if they're not bought within the given time frame. So that example in the morning might be all of the breakfast rolls or uh, pastries. They're simply going to be wasted at the end of the day. And that feels like a really important part of the topic, and especially nowadays. Yes, there's, there's many ways in which you can incur cost for having too much um, inventory too much stock. So one of them is obviously, as we said, the amount of space it takes up. But but certainly a, a big issue these days is the food waste that's generated when you have to uh, you end up throwing away a third of what you brought in. So this is where you've overbought, you've got too much, and then the worst worst case scenario is that that then expires. Suddenly it's not worth anything, or it's worth a reduced amounts anyway. You know, looking at the statistics on this, 
uh, company like Tesco has you know something like seventy seven thousand tons of, of of waste a year. You know that that's compared to ten million tons of, of food that it sells. So it's not huge, but but seventy seven thousand tons still sounds like a lot of a, a lot of food that, that that's not not being sold, not being not not being eaten, not not put to the use it was intended. It gets it gets thrown away. It goes to landfill. It generates greenhouse gases. So you know there's 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 lots of downside to this extra stock, especially when it's perishable and especially when it's food. And all of that extra stock was there simply because a forecast was made that they needed it and it would sell. But what we're trying to do is optimize that forecast, but specifically against demand driven by the customer. Right. Where a company has a belief that their customers are expecting to see a certain level of availability for bread rolls or cornflakes or milk or whatever it is, um, then they will tend to buy in a certain amount of food, a certain, a certain amount of stock for that availability to be met. But occasionally, because it's a forecast and forecasts aren't always right, and also they don't always take into account every last um, every last scenario, especially not the sort of flash scenarios you were talking about earlier, where people suddenly storm a supermarket and buy. Yeah, we'll call those our outliers. Outliers, indeed, indeed. But even one scenario that comes up is I've gone in looking for something, and if it's not there, I buy something else. I have to make a substitution because I can't go away empty-handed, especially in the case of groceries where. I need something to eat. So my decision on the shop floor is to pick something else, but that's never going to be captured. Oh, or it's much harder to capture it. You have to sort of, you have to look quite hard in the data to, to, to find those kind of patterns. It's called cannibalization or substitution in, in retail where you buy something else as a substitute for the thing you were looking for. It's cannibalization when it was cheaper and it's taking taking a more expensive or more lucrative sale away from you and substitution when it was just a, a poor second choice maybe. Um, it wasn't quite the brand you were after or something like that. But that's that's quite harder to see and and, and it's not it's not immediately obvious, I think, from just timestamps on point of sale data. You've got to sort of look at clusters of items that go together. You know, you wouldn't buy uh, Highland spring water and Evian water in the same basket, you might just buy one of them. Um, so you might decide to look at sales of the cluster of mineral water rather than particular brand of mineral water um, for, 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 that, for that particular instance. And that might then allow you to avoid that substitution issue, I think. And we were lucky enough to have an interview with Anna Sachs, a lecturer at the Department of Management Sciences at Lancaster University. Jeremy, you met her and interviewed with her. Okay, I'm here in Farringdon with uh, Anna Sachs, and we just had a really exciting talk from Anna on inventory management, especially as applied to uh, perishable goods. And there's really, I think, current and exciting use case here in, in, in terms of trying to help companies of all sorts, obviously supermarkets are sort of particular focus, but trying to help them reduce reduce waste uh, at the same time, help them make, maximize their um, availability of the products, and and of course they've got a focus on profit and sales as companies do. I think I think there were three really exciting sort of topics that came out of the talk, Anna, and and 
one that, that crops up for, for data scientists a lot in, in, in lots of industries is how you go about estimating demand from sales data. When you've only got sales data available, you, you, know, you, you don't know what, what necessarily the demand is directly. One of the main challenges is that in retailing, for example, you only observe the sales. So you won't know if a customer came to the store and wanted to buy a product, but it was not available. So there are different approaches to this. So you could assume that demand follows a certain distribution and that um, demand was censored. And then you use the properties of the theoretical um, distribution mm -hmm. function to estimate the demand that you could not observe. But we found that um, with our data, there is not one theoretical distribution that would fit all the stores and all the products. So we were looking for an estimation approach that doesn't need these kind of distributional assumptions. Right. And um, what we did was then that we established a sales pattern um, for each product and store. And we looked at the um, timing of the last sale. So if the um, last sale um, was very late, so just before um, the store closed, then we would assume that um, we have full demand information for mm. that day. And then we used all the days with the full demand observations to establish the sales pattern. And then we would see how many customers usually come to a store. Right. And then we used that information for the days um, when um, there was a stock out. And then we could estimate how much more the store could have sold for that product based right. on our estimates. So, so when, when a store had sold out of a product, it would record the fact that it sold out or, or, you would, or you'd be able to see that from the data that it had sold out. But then you could make an estimate for what the, the remaining tail of that sale would have been had it not sold out from the other data. Yeah, so we, we relied a lot on the timing of the sales. So with products that are clear um, one-day products, you know how much inventory you received in the morning and then you know how much you sold and then you would also know when you are sold out. But with products um, that have a longer shelf life, you have an inventory of different ages mm. and it's not so easy to distinguish then when the product has actually sold out. So in these cases, we would rather rely on the timing of the sales. And then we could see if there were any sales, for example, at four o'clock in the afternoon. And if there was, wasn't any sale, then we would assume that this would be a day with a stock out. Right. And in the context of the overall talk you gave, which was... You know, I think more broadly applicable to any uh, environment where you're maintaining, uh, you know, quite an expensive inventory of of, of items that may, maybe have a time critical sort of nature to them. Then, then you extended. You, you looked in your talk at, at, at the at the decision making process on that inventory inventory level. So you look at when should a, a retailer go ahead and buy new products to to restock. And obviously that, that then feeds in from the, what is my expected demand? I really need to have a, an accurate picture of the demand for, for my product. So how can, you, how can you manage to trade off that, the demand that you, you, you think you will be seeing with the requirement by a, a, a retailer to maybe have a certain level of stock on, on a particular item, a certain level of availability? What we did is that we looked, um, first of all, at the costs so at the underage and overage costs for the different products and then we could determine the critical ratio and see what so, kind uh, of sorry i'm going to say underage and overage just for people who don't know so underage is where 
What? So underage means that if you don't have enough available of that product, mm -hmm. which cost would you incur? Right, yeah. Then we calculate the critical ratio. So this would be the service level that they, are, they should target. But um, especially in retailing, where the margins are quite low, you would usually target a much lower critical ratio than what customers are expecting in yeah. terms of availability. So that's why um, we also looked at the service level approach. So um, we assumed that the retailer wants to have a certain um, in-stock um, probability. Yes. So um, how many days should the product still be available at the end of the day um, when the store closes? And so overage in this context then would be what happens when you have too much, you have to throw stuff away, yes. you've got a wastage cost yeah. associated with yeah. that or an expiry that's happened. Yeah. And then the final part of the talk, which I, I enjoyed as much as, as much as any, I thought, was we really looked at deploying your, your tool and your techniques and your um, research into, in, into a, an actual field study environment and being able to observe what the behavioral reaction by the people who were being asked to implement these changes was and being able to measure that as well which i've never seen before yeah i think there are two main aspects to this so first of all if we come up with an optimal solution and um, we want to implement this in practice then people are going to um, have to believe in um, the models that we used and that the results will be good what we found is that many people um, tend to overreact for example um, to previous demand observations mm -hmm. So um, if the demand was high yesterday, they would also assume that demand would be high today. But even though there are many behavioral biases that can come into play when you um, want to implement a solution um, in practice, you also need to consider that the decision makers, so the human decision makers, they, they may have additional information that can help make their decisions even better. So um, you should communicate to them what your model can do and um, what kind of factors are considered in the model, and if they have any additional knowledge, then they should use this knowledge and adjust. But if everything is constant and nothing has changed from what the model would consider, then they should just leave the model as it is and um, trust the results of the model. Anna, thank you very much. Well, thank you. That is so insightful, where the element of data science that needs to build trust in any model that you want to deploy or ask people to use is crucial to the success of that model and its implementation. So in this case, you can optimize an inventory all you want, but if you're not landing it by not getting that buy-in, mm. it's simply a wasted effort then. I think so. I think what you see in data science in general is that if you have a fantastic technique, if it's not used, if it's not picked up, then then you might as well not have bothered. You might as well have spent your time doing something else. And the thing that I loved about Anna's presentation was that she gave us this fantastic test of the approach that she'd done, that she'd gone for, by splitting her inventory optimization approach over four groups. So she was looking at, I think it was bread sales in, in stores in Germany, They had 64 stores, they split them into groups of 16 each, and they'd given them different levels of information. And this is really powerful because it allowed them to speak to the managers and the, the board of this company afterwards to say, look, we, we gave them different levels of information and different things happened. So in one group, I think they gave them just the sales data for the items. 
and they basically let them get on with ordering what they would normally order based on that. The, sen- the second group they gave the demand data, so they'd actually calculated this demand from the sales order. So they were saying, this is what we think the demand for your product is, and now we're going to ask you to estimate what inventory you're going to have, how, how much you should buy. And then the third group, they say, right, we're going, to do all, we're going to do it all. Look at the sales data, estimate the demand, do the forecast, and compute what your perfect, in quotes, inventory order ought to be. We're going to expose that to you and say, you can do that. You can order that if you want, but it's up to you. You can choose not to. There may be other reasons you have, good reasons, why you don't go with that. And then the fourth group, they said, they did all of the, all of the calculation, they produced the inventory order, and they said, you must abide by this. This is a binding contract. They obviously got the agreement to do this with, with the people in the stores and hats off to them for, for, for that because this is quite impressive. And they said, right, you've got to order what we, what we tell you to order. So the two really interesting groups there to me when I hear that is that difference between we suggest something because we've built a model and this is what the prediction is versus we prescribe something in your inventory and we can compare these two things because one of them is potentially not capturing and I think Anna alluded to this what the on the ground knowledge is on a more kind of daily basis more granular basis and might not be part of the model Uh, why would you not take a piece of good advice I I guess there's several reasons what you might not believe it you might you you might mistrust it you might not like the idea that someone's coming in and they don't know the business that you're working in yeah. and they think, oh, uh, you know, why, why shouldn't you know better than I do? I've been ordering bread for this, uh, this supermarket for the last 20 years. Yeah, so we've come across that as the whole field of algorithmic aversion. It speaks to what you're saying about having to get trust in what you're doing. You know, yeah. to an ele- there is an element in which data scientists are interlopers and intruders into any business that their, their expertise is in in science and in manipulation and 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 extraction of value from data but they're not necessarily the business domain experts but by my goodness they have to become those if they're going to be trusted and they're going to be um, taken seriously and produce something which uh, a domain expert who has worked in that business for 20 years is going to go, yeah, all right, that, that was, that's a decent outcome. I can see why that might, might work. Yeah, and the term of trust, I think, is really crucial here because even when we build something and we refer to it either being picked up or not by the business, we have to go on that venture with them of saying, this is how we can build your trust by engaging with you and exposing what the algorithm is doing and maybe even getting that feedback as it's being built and incorporating what's important to them as a stakeholder into the model before giving it out as an otherwise black box. Yeah, completely. You, you've got to take their expertise seriously and treat it with respect, I think. And, and if you can show you've done that, then they're much more likely to, um, to engage with, with any sort of data science output you might have. So what was the finding in this study, considering all of this with these four groups? That's right. So groups one and two were the ones where they were given very little information other than the data that they had already. Sales data and demand data, I think it was. And for those groups, there was a propensity to underorder. it turned out. They would, they would go with their usual sort of rule of thumb, heuristic, whatever you want to call it. They'd order 
the amounts that they probably would have ordered even without having been involved in this experiment. And it turned out that they were getting an average, I don't know, 55, uh, 56% or so of uh, availability for the stock item that they were, they were trying to order, the bread product. And it didn't seem to vary very much between those two categories where they had access to what the demand was or what the sales was. So there was no, there was no, there was no difference there. But then where there was difference, which is obviously great for the experiment, was in the third and the fourth group. The third and the fourth group were the ones where they were given the full calculation. And group three was one where they were asked to uh, take it into account. And group four, they were asked to just order what they were um, told to order. And in group three, the availability went up to 65%. And in group four, the inventory level um, the availability, I should say, went up to over 70%. So I think from Anna's perspective, like, yeah, the techniques I've been telling you about and I've done all my investigation uh, into are, are, you know, validated, which is lovely. So I think, I think around group three, we have the nudge. We have the, the, uh, the, the validation that you, can, uh, that you can suggest the right course of action to people. You can still give them the autonomy to to disagree with it and to do something else. You know, they might, for very good reason, because there's a road closure near the store or because uh, there's a, an exceptional festival that's just started or something, they might decide not to to do what you suggest. But if, if it's a normal run-of-the-mill Monday in June, then just do what the model says. And if they do that, then actually they get they get an improvement in there availability and then because the availability is improved also the um, the profitability and the margin will, will, will go up as well. For Anna's work she was seeing this uh, tendency to under order when they were not given this extra information but they were ordering a little more and it was justified they were selling more uh, products as well um, and keeping their availability at the, uh, the appropriate amount um, when, when they were given this extra data science inspired information. And where will this go to other fields or other case studies? I think the crossover is huge. I mean, it's, it's obviously got this lovely narrative in uh, retail. And I think it, you know, it goes beyond the looking at food waste, which is a really important area in itself. But I think it goes into looking at how you potentially resource an organization against varying an uncertain pattern of, of demand as well. So, I mean, if you're looking at in the same market area, if, you, if you're looking at um, physical stores, you're looking at how many people should I have on the till, how many people should I have stocking the shelves or, or just running the operation and providing that service, it's going to vary dramatically according to the number of people who actually want to visit the store and, um, and buy the products which in turn is a, is a very uh, time-dependent feature of running a, 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 an operation. So I think you could use this process to actually set the resource level, set the number of people, set the number of vehicles, if you've got a vehicle-based operation. Um, just the, the overall resources that you need to run that operation could be set using this kind of approach. I think, that, that, I think that's really powerful because that then has crossover to almost any sort of service industry that you might care to, care to talk about. How can we get benefit from this? I think if you're a data scientist looking to get into this area, the really nice thing is that this isn't, this isn't hard data science. This is basic 
uh, linear programming that's used initially on the optimization aspect of this. So if you go to any textbook on optimization, you'll find linear programming described. And what you're trying to do is minimize your cost of maintaining a certain inventory at a certain level versus the upside, which is selling the, the, the inventory that you've got. And then just taking it a little bit further, looking at demand rather than sales, as we've described already, and then looking at a forecast then of that demand, looking at the future. If you're actually turning this into a tool, what's going to happen, not what did happen. So turn your historic data into a forecast because that's what people will want to make decisions on and that's what will get you a reaction and a positive decision around a, a real life situation. And I think the final thing, which, as I said, just blew me away about Anna's presentation was just the construction of good quality controlled experiments and uh, A-B testing, although really for her it was sort of A-B-C-D testing, but giving people the version of your software, the version of your tool, the version of your science, and then giving a set of people just the normal decision process they would go through. Because that is so powerful when it comes to convincing senior people in a company about whether your tool and your input is going to be effective and uh, is going to drive impact and I think I think she did that and set that up really well. Cool. There's a whole perspective here that I didn't have when we started into it, which is when you as a customer go into the shop, everything that's presented to you is presented with a probability, whether it's there or not. And as you go around the shop, what I see as a potentially empty shelf is only empty to me looking for that item. But if I'm not looking for it, that's a probability distribution that I've just walked by otherwise. So trying to optimize for the generic customer is also where there's a complexity that I didn't realize is in the customer's hands. I think the realization here that the customer has a set of expectations that are themselves stochastic or probabilistic and it's very difficult sometimes to second guess these as a, a company or a service provider or a retailer, you, you don't necessarily know what they find acceptable in terms of seeing on your, on, your, on your store. So it's a really interesting and complex, I think, interaction between what your customer wants and, and what, what you're providing um, as, a, as, as a function of your own supply chain. It's a, it's a fascinating area of, of uh, retail and I think of data science as well. Who knew customers could be in any way unpredictable? <laughs> Indeed. Great. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Cafe. You can share, subscribe or review online and please join us again next time.